Hello, everybody. I would like to welcome you to Living an Ethical Life with Professor Peter Singer. Before we get underway, I'll briefly run down the process for tonight's event, um, introduce our speaker, and mention the organisations which are running tonight's event. First, let me introduce to you Professor Peter Singer. Professor Singer has been called the world's most influential living philosopher. Having completed studies at Melbourne University and Oxford University, he has gone on to become a leading figure in many fields of practical ethics, such as animal rights and effective altruism. He is currently a professor at Princeton University and Melbourne University. Today's event is being run by two clubs at Melbourne University, the Effective Altruism, or EA Club, as well as the One for the World Melbourne Uni Club. At their core, both these clubs are dedicated towards improving human well-being in the most effective way possible. EA acts as an ideas-based group, whereas One for the World um, takes a more immediate and active approach towards reducing global poverty. If you're interested in what you hear tonight, I'd highly recommend getting involved in both these organisations. We'll go through more about this at the end. On to how today's event will work. Professor Singer will first speak for a short while and then we will subsequently move to the Q&A part of the session. A link will be sent in the chat to the Q&A app where you can upload, uh, upvote any of the questions that you'd like to see asked and also add any questions of your own if they're not there. We'll, we'll also be sending things talked about in tonight's event um, to the chat in real time, so keep, keep an eye on the chat. Professor Singer is currently working on a number of exciting projects. He's just released the 10-year anniversary of um, his book, The Life You Can Save. This is available as a free audio book um, from thelifeyoucansave.org and it's also available for 99 cents on Kindle from Amazon for a while. I would also like to mention that the EA Society UniMelb is recording this talk and we will be posting it to our Facebook page about a week after the event. Finally, I'd just like to say personally for me that Professor Singer has had a huge impact on my life and many of our lives in the EA community. Since reading his book on the, his, since reading his 2013 book on effective altruism, it's truly changed me for the better and taught me a lot about how to live the best life. The things he'll speak about today are not just broad concepts, but involve concrete steps we can all take for very little cost to make the world such a better place. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Peter Singer. Thank you very much, Nathan. Thanks for that introduction. And I'm happy to have the chance to speak to all of the people who are listening to this. Um, as some of you may know, this was to be an in-person event that we originally scheduled for the University of Melbourne uh, towards the end of March. And of course, events made that impossible. Um, but I'm glad that we can still do it this way. So uh, I'm going to just talk, as Nathan said, somewhat uh, briefly to give you an overview of some of the issues that I'm interested in and that I've been working on, essentially most of them throughout my career. Um, and then we're going to go to questions and discussion. And uh, I'm open for you to ask any questions relating to my work, whether I've talked about it in this introduction or not. 
Okay, so um, as Nathan said, I was uh, educated at the University of Melbourne and Oxford University, and uh, I did a graduate degree at Oxford um, that I uh, completed in 1971. Now, um, at that time, it was something of a radical idea that philosophy might have something to say about how we ought to live and what we ought to do about a variety of moral issues. Um, when I say it was a radical idea, you might say, hey, wait a minute, didn't, didn't Socrates walk around Athens talking about how we ought to live? Isn't that sort of part of the essential DNA of philosophy? Um, you might think it was, it is, and, and certainly it was part of that tradition for a very long time. But uh, in the 50s and 60s, something uh, sprung up which essentially said the business of philosophy is the analysis of uh, our concepts, including moral concepts. So there was still moral philosophy, but it simply limited itself to talking about uh, what is the meaning of ought, uh, what does it mean to say something is good. And some of the leading philosophers at the time, like uh, A.J. Eyre, who was a professor at Oxford when I was there, um, actually said that, you know, People turn to philosophy sometimes because they want to get an answer to how they ought to live, and they're, they're bound to come away disappointed because that's not the business of philosophy. That's the business of the preacher or the politician, he said. It was a bit, bit strange for Eyre to say that that was the business of the preacher because he was a well-known atheist, but um, you know he still clearly thought it was not the business of philosophy. Fortunately for me and for my continued career in philosophy, just at the time when I was a graduate student, things were starting to change, partly as a result of the Vietnam War uh, and the demand of the student movement of that time for more relevant courses. And uh, one way in which students wanted philosophy to be relevant was to say, well, is the Vietnam War right or wrong? Uh, am I justified in refusing to obey uh, orders to be conscripted? Am I justified in taking part in civil disobedience? So. Philosophers started to look at some of those questions, um, and I was interested in those questions, uh, of course. In fact, I, I wrote my thesis at Oxford on whether it was justifiable to disobey the law in a democracy. But I was also interested in other questions. And the first one that I wrote on, which is very relevant to effective altruism and, and one for the world, and also the organization I founded, The Life You Can Save, uh, was an article called Famine, Affluence and Morality, published in 1972. Uh, and uh, that raised the question of, are we, meaning people in the affluent world, justified in continuing to enjoy what's essentially a very comfortable, often somewhat luxurious lifestyle, while there are people elsewhere in desperate need? Uh, unable perhaps to feed themselves or to get even the most minimal health care. And to uh, make that vivid and to have a, a base of comparison, I used uh, a little example that has since become quite well known of walking past a, a shallow pond in which you see that a small child has fallen. And you know that you can rescue the child. There's no danger to you because the pond is a shallow one but you are going to ruin your uh, expensive shoes that you've just put on for some special occasion. You don't have time to kick them off. Uh, so there is a cost to you. Um, but, you know, when you say to people, well, would it be wrong to ignore the child because you didn't want to get your shoes damaged? Everybody says, oh, how could you compare 
uh, a pair of shoes with a child's life. That would obviously be an awful thing to do. But the point I made in the article was that even though most people would think that in that case, in fact, when we spend money on expensive shoes or on a whole host of other luxuries that we don't really need, we are doing it at the cost of a child's life because uh, that money can save the life of a child. You, know, you might say, well, um, that depends a bit how expensive the shoes really are, but um, certainly you can put it towards saving a child's life, even if your shoes are not so pricey that they'll quite pull that off. Um, so, uh, you know, I, that, that was a way of suggesting that maybe it's more difficult than people might think to justify spending money on luxuries when there are other people in great need. So uh, that article came out in 1972. It got put in a number of uh, philosophy anthologies. So quite a lot of students came to read it over the years. Uh, and it influenced some of the people who much later in the uh, early uh, noughts uh, um, started the effective altruism movement. I'm thinking about people like Toby Ord, incidentally also educated at the University of Melbourne before going to Oxford, and uh, Will McCaskill. Uh, so um, I'm you know, delighted, of course, that, that that did finally have that kind of impact because that was the sort of impact I always wanted it to have, that people would say, no, yes, uh, this is not just a philosophical argument. This is not ju just something to grapple with in philosophy classes. This is something about the way to live. And, and we need to think about that and, and how to do the most good with it. The other issue that I uh, got interested in around the same time, although it took a little bit longer to write about, is um, the issue of our treatment of animals. Uh, and that was something that uh, was quite new to me. And that's a contrast with the question of global poverty and what we ought to do about that, uh, because I had, you know, been interested in that for, for many years. But um, I hadn't really thought about the question of how we ought to treat animals because in the 1960s and early 1970s, very few people did. Uh, just about nobody uh, really talked about it. And extraordinary as it might seem to people at university today, I'd never actually met or talked to a, a vegetarian until I was a graduate student at Oxford. Um, I knew there were vegetarians. I knew there were like Hindus who were vegetarians, but that wasn't something I was going to relate to. Um, I knew there were some people who were vegetarians because they thought meat was bad for your health, but I wasn't really too worried about that. Um, but uh, when I was a graduate student in 1970, I met somebody who was a vegetarian, and when I asked him why, he simply said, uh, I don't think it's right to treat animals the way we're treating them before we kill them and turn them into meat. Uh, and I said, oh, why not? Don't they you know, have good lives out in the fields? You know, sure, I know they get slaughtered. And I know that transport to the slaughter isn't good because I've seen those crowded uh, cattle trucks and, and pig trucks. Um, but, you know, if they have a good life, isn't that okay? Uh, and he told me, no, they don't have a good life because uh, more and more of them are getting taken off the fields and put inside in big crowded sheds. So I started to look into that and do some research, and that was true. I'd never heard of factory farming. Uh, it wasn't well known or discussed in those days. Uh, but that did get me thinking about, well, how ought we to treat animals? Are we, you know, why do we always talk about rights, but we only do so in the context of human rights? Or why do we talk about equality, but we're always thinking about um, 
equality for humans, that all humans are equal. We never ask ourselves, and why is it exactly that all humans are equal, but animals somehow are not equal? They're outside this uh, sphere of equality that we've created. So uh, I've got me thinking about that, talking to some other people about that, and uh, I started writing about that and eventually published Animal Liberation, which came out in 1975. So that's been another major stream of my thought, uh, the ethics of how we ought to treat animals. And again, I'm, I'm really pleased to see that it's not unusual at all to meet a vegetarian uh, nowadays or, or, of course, a vegan. And the term vegan was not something that uh, I would have understood when I first got interested in this. Nobody really knew that term. Um, so uh, it's, it's also encouraging that that's made some progress in that respect, although it still has a long way to go. Uh, so those are two of my major uh, lines of thought. Uh, I've been interested in a number of other issues. I am a professor of bioethics, so I'm interested in ethical issues in medicine and healthcare. I've been an advocate for uh, voluntary euthanasia or physician aid in dying, which again is something that's spreading now. Uh, I became increasingly concerned about climate change in the from the 1980s onwards, uh, and still I'm very concerned about that issue. Oh, and I've written articles on that. I haven't written a book on that. Um, I've got chapters in books on that, but essentially there's a lot of good people saying similar things to what I would say if I were to write a book. Uh, so I suppose those are the major issues, as I've, as I've said. Uh, effective altruism is something that came up more recently, but is continuous in general thoughts with the original article I wrote, um, although I focused exclusively on global poverty. Uh, and I still do think that that's um, you know, certainly a major issue for effective altruism. But I recognize that the effective altruism issue or the effective altruism movement is much broader in its interest than that. And I'll be happy to discuss that with you if you want to raise questions about it. But I think probably um, that's enough for my initial introduction. And uh, let's have your questions and take the discussion on from there. I'm happy, by the way, if you want to make comments on things that I've said rather than just ask straight questions, uh, that's fine too. We've got plenty of time, so I'm looking forward to a good discussion. Thank you. Sure. Thank, thank you very much for that introduction, Professor Singer. Um, I think when you talked about the part at the start of your Life You Can Save book about walking past the child in the water, um, I know when I first read that book, that was an analogy that resonated very strongly with me and still does. Um, so I'd highly recommend having a read of that book. Now, on to our first question. Um, what are you doing at the moment? <laughs> what am I doing at the moment other, other than talking to you? Yes. You mean. Um, Okay, so I've got a number of things that I've been doing during this uh, period. I mean, if it were not for coronavirus, I would be in Europe right now giving uh, a number of talks that I had arranged. Uh, and that's a great pity in many ways that I can't do that. But of course, um, it does give me a bit more time to get on with some of the projects uh, that I'm working on. So uh, one thing that perhaps the most recent thing that I've, I've just uh, well, I haven't finished it at all, but uh, taken it a stage further, is um, when I talk about global poverty, uh, as I just did earlier, um, and effective altruism and the importance of saving lives, uh, quite often somebody will get up and say, 
isn't uh, the problem with saving lives that the world is already overpopulated, that we already have too many people in the world. And if you're going to save lives, you're just going to make that worse. Um, isn't, you know, isn't it all unsustainable? Isn't it all going to crash? And really what we need to do is to do something to reduce the world's population. So um, uh, there's a sort of short answer that I can give to that question, which basically is, um, well, even if we do, uh, we don't want to do that by just letting people die, letting people starve, letting children die of malaria or uh, diseases like that. Uh, we want to do it by reducing fertility. That's, that's the short answer. But um, the bigger question is, uh, is there a problem with global population? Uh, if there is, what can we do about it? Or what is an ethical response to that? Um, and I, I stress that because uh, in the 1960s, um, we had a lot of uh, concern about global population, um, most notably a book by Paul Ehrlich called The Population Bomb, uh, published in 68, uh, which predicted mass famines in the 70s and 80s that would dramatically reduce the world's population. Fortunately, Ehrlich was wrong. That didn't happen. Um, but it did lead to concern about population that caused uh, some drastic responses. Uh, obviously, China eventually adopted a one-child policy, which has only recently been eased, that uh, led to uh, a lot of abuses. And in India as well, uh, the government of Indira Gandhi um, declared a state of emergency and local officials were given quotas for a number of sterilizations that they should carry out. Um, and again, there were a lot of abuses. Men were uh, sort of gathered together without really giving any proper consent um, and uh, asked if they had children. And if they said yes, then they were pressured into having a vasectomy. Uh, so um, we don't want to repeat that. Um, and the question is, what can we do? So I've been thinking about this issue for a while and I've been talking about it with uh, a couple of other people, um, one of whom is, is Frances Kissling, a, a woman who's worked in women's reproductive health and reproductive rights for many years. Another is Alex Ize, who's a professor uh, um, at the, in the Dornsife School of Global Health in, uh, in Philadelphia, but uh, who particularly uh, comes from Nigeria and is an expert in the demographics of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, which is the area that now has the highest rate of population growth. So uh, we've formed a team and um, I've just submitted a draft introductory chapter and an outline uh, to a, I have a, a book agent in New York to see what she thinks about it, whether she thinks that there's a, a book in this. So, so that's a possible future thing that I will work on over the next couple of years, assuming my agent thinks it's a, it's an idea that uh, she can find a good publisher for. Um, that's one thing. Uh, another thing that I've been doing is going back to what I said about animals. Um, uh, Penguin has a series called Great Ideas, um, short books, about 30,000 word books. Um, and they asked if they could um, uh, collect some of my essays on animals for that book. So that's going to be coming out sometime before the end of the year. I've just um, been working on which essays will go into it. Uh, it's going to be called Why Vegan? with a question mark. So you can look out for that towards the end of the year and it'll include some of those early writings that I talked about that I wrote in the 1970s as well as some 
more recent articles that also bring in the question of uh, meat and climate change, which has become another powerful reason for avoiding meat. Excellent. Thank you, Professor Singer. Um, our second question is some of us, or in fact, a lot of us have a lot more time on our, our hands at the moment due to the lockdown. Do you have any suggestions on how best we spend this time? Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to uh, do some thinking about your, your life goals. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have to do that thinking in isolation because uh, you can talk to people about it. Well, you know, in a way, we're very lucky that this lockdown has occurred in the internet age, so we can still talk to all of our friends as much as we like. Um, and I know there's a lot of that going on. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, people very often, they, they, they get into a kind of a, a groove of uh, what they think they're going to do for their career, uh, why that's a good choice, how it matches their particular skills and abilities, and uh, they go on with that. And sometimes that may work out very well. They've made the right choices. It is something that they're concerned about, and it's something that can do a lot of good. But uh, other people maybe get you know, pushed by parents or other influences into something that's not necessarily the most rewarding thing for them uh, and is not the best thing for the world as a whole. And it's the latter question that I think is worth thinking about too, that people don't do enough thinking about. So uh, as part of the effective altruism movement, um, I already mentioned Will McCaskill, one of the founders of effective altruism, uh, professor now of philosophy at Oxford. And uh, he uh, helped to set up an organization called 80,000 Hours. So 80,000 is uh, his estimate of the number of hours that people spend in their working in their career over their lifetime. That's a lot of hours when you think about it. So you spent, if you're going to spend 80,000 hours in your career, ask yourself, have I spent even 80 hours actually thinking about whether this is the best career for me, like two full weeks of thought? And the answer for most people is no. I admit they haven't, although that's only one thousandth of the hours they're likely to spend in their career. So how about using some of those hours during the lockdown to think about your career choices and in particular to think about, is this a career in which not only am I going to be satisfied, but am I going to be doing good for the world? Um, am, I going to be do, am I going to do, to take the title of one of my books, the most good I can do? And uh, so the resource for that is this organization called 80,000 Hours. You can Google it. It's just 80,000.org. Um, and there's a lot of information there about career choices and uh what to think about in terms of your career. So that's that's a useful thing that you can have time to do now in the lockdown and maybe it'll be life-changing for you. Yeah, com completely agree. And um, for everyone watching, that link to 80,000 hours has been posted in the chat. Um, I want to now move on to a question about coronavirus. So what at what point do you think that the economic losses outweigh the potential losses of life? How do you think about that trade-off between the consequences of an economic recession um, compared with the consequences of loss of life? Okay, so first let me just reiterate, it's already obvious, but um, I'm a philosopher. Um, that means I think about ideas and concepts and values, but I don't necessarily have all of the facts at my fingertips, the data, that would be necessary to make the decision about how long should the lockdown continue. Um, and in fact, I don't really think anybody does, although there's a couple of papers that have been written about it. 
Um, it's one by a guy called Paul Freitas. There's a one by Neil Ferguson and a team of writers at the Imperial College in London. There's one by uh, Savendra Gupta at Oxford. Um, so there's there's papers out there you can read and you can you know discuss whether you think the modelling is accurate. But what I think about as a philosopher is what are the values at stake here? And some people say, well, at all costs, we have to save lives. Um, and so that's got to trump everything else. Now, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think there's two things wrong with that. One is to just talk about saving lives assumes that uh, all lives are equally valuable to save. And although many people will say, well, yes, of course, we all think that. Um, I think that to fail to take into account how many years of life you saved is a mistake. And that's very relevant to coronavirus because the victims of coronavirus are mostly people who are 70 and beyond. You know, I'm 70 and beyond. Um, I hope I still have a few good years of life left. But um, uh, I do think that uh, my death would be less of a tragedy than your death, say Nathan, because you hopefully have many more years to live. Um, and I think that's that's relevant. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the, I saw, I, I looked up some figures for Australia's deaths, um, and the median age is uh, even older than I am, 79. So still less years of life expectancy. Um, and in addition, uh, there's a very high rate of those people who die from it who have an underlying health condition. Now, some of those might be underlying health conditions that they could have met, lived many years. Diabetes is counted as an underlying health condition here, for example. Obviously, people can live pretty normal lifespans with diabetes. But some of those people may have had cancer that was going to kill them in a year or two anyway or other conditions that they were not likely to survive. So I think it's very relevant to, do, to, to, to make that point. Um, and it does actually reduce, in my view, the tragedy of the deaths that are there, um, even though I'm not saying that it's, you know, not tragic that my children and grandchildren would know that mourn me if I were to die, but um, uh, it would be very sad, but, but it's still, as I said, a lesser, a lesser loss. So um, that's one thing that you have to um, consider. And the other thing is that uh, if the lockdown does cause very severe long-term damage to the economy, if it makes um, very large numbers of people unemployed, and if that unemployment is not just temporary, but industries collapse and take a long time to get started again, then uh, that's a great loss to the quality of life of people, um, even if they're, you know, they're, they're not going to die from it perhaps, but um, it's, it's a great hardship and it makes their lives less good than they would be and I think that's relevant too um, so I think somehow we have to take that into account and weigh it against the loss of life years uh, and that's that's difficult to do but that's the kind of information we need how serious are these costs how bad is the unemployment does it cause people to become depressed and that's you know serious mental illness is a real problem um, does it cause more domestic violence because people are at home together? Um, that's a serious, you know, all of these are serious issues and we really would need all of that information to try and say when the lockdown should end. But, um, you know, my main point is it's not just a matter of saying 
well, if we end the lockdown, more people would die, so therefore we shouldn't end the lockdown. I think there's some trade-off between more people would die and we will be poorer, we'll have a worse quality of life, more people will get depressed, there'll be more domestic violence, um, all of those things uh, we have to take into account. Yeah, thank you, Professor. I think that's a great analysis. Um, on that same topic, do you think coronavirus provides us with a strong reason for stopping um, fact all factory farms in general and moving the world towards a plant-based system of food production? I think it does, actually. I just, um, you know, I mentioned this little book, Why Vegan, that um, I'm just putting the finishing touches to. Um, and uh, the I was thinking of writing a preface for that, making this point, because the articles, of course, don't make, maybe one of them mentions it because, you know, we have known for some years that there's a risk of pandemic starting in factory farms. Um, but it doesn't mention it, you know, it doesn't make much of a point of it. Um, so, you know, as it turns out, the Penguin series doesn't use prefaces, so it's not going to appear, but there's going to be an American edition of it for which, which, which will use the preface. And the preface makes this point strongly that, you know, for me, the main reason for, for not eating meat right from the start was the way animals are treated and that I don't think we're justified in sacrificing the major interests of animals uh, because we prefer the taste of their flesh rather than some other equally nourishing food. Then climate change came along and that added an important reason uh, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. But uh, now I think there is, you know, more prominently being discussed a third reason, uh, and that is um, th to reduce the risk of, of further pandemics. And even if this pandemic didn't come out of a factory farm, and the evidence seems to be that it came out of the uh, wildlife markets in Wuhan, so it did come out of eating, eating meat, um, but not specifically out of factory farms, and some people are therefore calling for a closure of wildlife market so that we stop eating wild animals and th that would if that hadn't happened then probably we wouldn't be in this situation today with the novel coronavirus but um, if you look at other pandemics and epidemics that we've had in recent years um, they do come from factory farms uh, the um, last pandemic that the world health organization declared to be a pandemic was the swine flu pandemic of 2009 that came out of factory farms in the united states um, and we've also had avian uh, uh, viruses that have influenced that have come to humans from chicken uh, factory farms uh, so yeah i think there's a really important additional reason now for ending factory farming um, it's going to be a big struggle because factory farms will resist. Um, it's a huge industry. They've got a lot of money that they can use to advertise, to try to survive. But, um, you know, as consumers, what we can do is to say, well, I'm not going to support it anyway. So I'm not going to buy any more factory farm products. Uh, that may mean becoming vegan for some people. For other people, it may mean uh, limiting their consumption of animal products and making sure that what they get comes from uh, organic, free-range producers. Um, those animals are healthier. They're less likely to get viruses because they're healthier animals. They're spread out. They're not crowded together with 20,000 chickens in a single shed. Um, so that would help. Um, but uh, trying to avoid factory farming altogether and trying to get it stopped 
would be the safest way to reduce the risk of a pandemic, of, of another pandemic. Sure. And on the topic of animals, um, what do you think are the other effective ways to reduce animal suffering apart from dietary, individual dietary changes? Well, um, apart from making those choices yourself, and as I say, not supporting factory farming and not supporting uh, the, the cruelty to animals involved, the other thing that you can do is to support uh, an effective uh, animal advocacy organisation. And uh, it's n not easy to know which are the, the most effective organisations in general, but um, here in Australia, um, I've for many years been a supporter of what's now called Animals Australia. In fact, I was a co-founder of uh, an organisation called the Australian Federation of Animal Societies, which uh, eventually became Animals Australia. Um, and I've been pleased to see that um, there's a there's an organisation that evaluates animal charities um, called Animal Charity Evaluators. You can find it online. Um, uh, most of it's, it's it's based in the US, and most of the charities it supports are, are US ones. But um, Animals Australia is, I think, one that it recognises as a standout charity or um, as a as a charity that's well worth supporting. So uh, if you uh, want to support either as a by volunteering or by you know seeing how you can assist uh, their campaigns or uh, by becoming a financial supporter and therefore getting on their email list and they'll tell you when they want you to write letters to your MP or do other things uh, that all helps to build up the organization to make it as strong as possible uh, and I'm sure many of you have actually seen the work of Animals Australia because if you've seen those uh, videos of live exports of our sheep and uh, going to the Middle East and our cattle going to Indonesia and the horrible conditions that they're in. Uh, those videos have uh, come from or been uh, presented by Animals Australia to the public. Sure. And um, on to one of our top-rated questions. How do we determine if an animal's life is a net positive or a net negative experience. Um, if we all eventually switch to a to a vegan diet, and cows, pigs, chickens, sheep are, are all significantly reduced in number, should we be okay with this? Well, on balance, the, from the from the world we're in today to that world, I think we should definitely be okay with that, um, and that's because I do believe that the lives of animals in factory farms are very probably negative. Um, I say very probably because no one can be certain of that. The animals can't exactly tell us. But um, there are experts in animal behaviour and animal welfare who've looked at that and have concluded that they are under great stress because of their crowding, because they're in numbers that are not normal for their species. You never see thousands of chickens together in the wild uh, or even in a farmyard situation. You might see... 30, 40, 50 uh, scientists have shown that chickens can actually recognise each other as individuals up to about a flock of about 90. Um, but beyond that, they can't. So obviously, when they're in a shed with 20,000, they've got no hope. So they're stressed from not knowing which of the birds are dominant over them and they need to avoid. Um, they're also uh, um, they're bred to grow extremely rapidly. And because of that, their leg bones have trouble in supporting the weight of their bodies because basically they're they're grossly obese 
toddlers, right? It's as if it's as if we have stuffed human toddlers so much that they, I don't know, weighed fifty kilograms by the time they were six months old or something. Because um, these the, the chickens in supermarkets are actually about six weeks old. Um, they're really babies, but they're very large babies. Um, and uh, so ethologists who look at this say these birds are actually in pain just standing up because their legs are you know, not strong enough to support their their body weight. Uh, and they can't really sit down because what they would be sitting on is uh, kind of what's called litter, the sort of stuff that's in the shed, straw or something like wood shavings. But it's full of their droppings because you've got all of these birds in the shed and it doesn't get cleaned out every six weeks either. Um, so because it's full of their droppings, um, the air of the shed is full of ammonia and uh, with moisture in the air, uh, the droppings actually form uh, an acid. Um, and if they sit on it for too long, they get acid burns uh, on their hocks, on, on their thighs. So they're not really comfortable sitting or standing. So I think it's pretty clear that their lives are negative. Um, and I haven't even talked about the lives of their parents who are also genetic birds that like, would normally eat a lot, but, but they're half starved because if you fed them as much as they want to eat, uh, they wouldn't survive to sexual maturity. You know, the, the chickens people eat are not sexually mature, obviously. They're six weeks old. The breeding birds have to be sexually mature, so they have to be starved, basically, and given much less than they would normally eat um, to produce those birds. So, you know, that's that's the majority of factory farm animals are chickens. Now, you can talk, we could talk about pigs in detail as well. Um, some people might say, well, you know, what about beef cattle, let's say? Aren't they outside most of the time? And they are, that's true. Some of the last months of their lives might be on feedlots, um, but even that's not as bad as what I just described with the chicken sheds. Uh, but as I said, the problem with cattle is that they're the major contributors to, to greenhouse gases of the livestock sector. So saying, yeah, well, their lives may be positive, so it's okay to eat them, neglects the climate change factor. Um, and that's why I think it is better to get to be vegan or uh, near vegan anyway. Um, and uh, it's not impossible to produce animals commercially that have positive lives um, and perhaps that, you know, if we're not talking about cattle or sheep that are not such big contributors to greenhouse gases, but, um, but it would be a very small proportion of all of the animal products we produce today. Um, something's happened to your sound. Sorry, I'm not hearing you now. Sorry, I was still I was still muted. Um, Professor Singer, on that on that topic, um, do do you think that for animals that are you know more ethically treated, so they're well fed, they're they're better protected, they're not kept in cages, do you think it's ethical to still eat those animals? And is that more of a feasible alternative than you know everybody transitioning to a, a vegan? Yeah, um, it's it's certainly something that is um, much more defensible, and you know, I think. Whereas to me, it's it's very clear that we ought not to be eating factory farm animal products, uh, and we not ought not to be eating uh, meat from from cattle in particular, as that's the highest contributor to greenhouse gases. But um, if you say, uh, well, what about free range eggs? Right? Suppose you know you. You've got a. You can get free-range eggs. They can, you know that they come from hens who are outside on grass. That I think that is a positive life for those hens. 
Um, and uh, chickens are not major contributors to greenhouse gases, so we don't have to worry about that aspect of it that much. Um, now, some people will say, well, okay, um, so the chicken, the, the hens themselves will have uh, quite good lives, but um, firstly, all of the male uh, chicks of that variety will be killed as soon as they're hatched because males don't lay eggs and this is not a breed that is economic to raise for meat. So they're going to get killed straight away. And the hens themselves won't live out their normal life because their rate of laying will drop off. And uh, once the rate of lay drops off, uh, the commercial producers are going to have them killed too. They don't want to be feeding hens who are not laying as many eggs as other hens that they could get would. So there are those problems and some people will say, and that's that's enough reason uh, to not eat those, those products, but others might say, well, if the hens have good lives and the choice is that otherwise they'll have no life at all, um, and if I enjoy eating uh, free-range eggs, uh, then I think that that outweighs the killing of the male chicks and the fact that the hens themselves are killed uh, you know, while they're not, not particularly old. Um, and as I say, I think that's arguable. I don't really uh, object to that. And I've said that in that preface to uh, Why Vegan that I just sent to the US publisher of the book, that uh, if you want to eat uh, a commercially available animal product, free-range eggs is probably one of the best of them. Um, the other one that I that I do eat and that I think is also fine, uh, um, the simple, simple mollusks, the, the bivalves, like uh, oysters, mussels, clams, scallops. Um, I don't believe that they are capable of feeling pain. I think their nervous systems are too rudimentary for that. Um, and I don't, well, you know, certainly for most of them, I don't think they're environmental problems. There's some environmental problems with harvesting bivalves from the seafloor, um, but uh, that's not true for uh, all of them. So uh, I think that that's also not a problem. So, you know, some people might say, well, I'm not even a vegetarian uh, if I'm prepared to eat mussels. Um, but that's okay. You know, I, I'm not going to worry about the label. Um, what I'm worrying about is, am I contributing to uh, unnecessary animal suffering that uh, is avoidable? Am I contributing to greenhouse gases? And now, am I contributing to the risk of a pandemic? Um, and if I'm not doing any of those three, then I think that really takes care of the most serious ethical questions uh, about what I'm eating. Sure, sure. I know that's a lot of comfort um, to a lot of us, that, that particularly when, when the philosophy can be quite demanding. Um, our next question is, we know that you believe equal suffering um, requires equal moral consideration and that this applies irrespective of boundaries or, or species. Um, but how do you value the death of a person versus the death of a non-human animal? Yeah, um, so I do think that these are, are significantly different. Um, I, I used to take the view that the difference lies in the fact that uh, a person is the being who is aware of their future and has plans for the future, as, as we all do. And that that makes a difference because you're thwarting those plans for the future. You're cutting them off. Um, I held that view when I was uh, a preference utilitarian. That is when I 
thought that what we really ought to be basing our ethical judgments on is a whether we're satisfying preferences in general or whether we're thwarting or frustrating preferences. Um, a few years ago, I shifted to uh, what's known as a hedonistic utilitarian, which is more like the classical version of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill that uh, says the right action is the one that maximizes happiness, minimizes pain and suffering. Uh, and on that view, preferences are not so directly relevant, but they are still relevant because um, one difference between beings like us um, is that, uh, and non-human animals, is that we are aware of things that they are not. So we're aware of the fact, you know, that if if we're being killed, if we're at risk of being killed, if there's uh, you know, murderers around or terrorists, or if there's a, a virus that's killing people, um, that we're concerned about that and we take steps to try to reduce our risk of it and we may be uh, anxious because of it. Um, whereas animals are not affected by that if, you know, they may be, if they see other animals being killed around them in the last moments, but um, animals on a farm, for example, are not aware that other, uh, that eventually they will be killed or that that's been happening to other animals. So um, killing humans inevitably will cause, well, when I say inevitably, except for maybe some hypothetical cases or rare cases where no one else finds out about it, um, will cause that kind of distress and anxiety uh, and insecurity in humans and will make uh, humans, normal humans I'm talking about here, of course, uh, more worried about their life prospects. So there are still those differences, even on the hedonistic view, that I think make it more serious to kill uh, human beings than, than killing non-human animals. Sure. And with the animal rights movement, um, what advice would you would you give to that movement for the next decade? Where should attention be focused? Um, you know, on what animals, in what locations, and what changes should be made to animal rights activism? Yeah. Well, um, in terms of the focus on what animals. Um, I've thought you know, for many years, pretty much since I got involved in the thinking about animals, that we should be focused on uh, farmed animals primarily. Uh, and that's because of both the severity of their suffering in factory farms, which I've talked about, <coughs> and the numbers involved. And it's in particular the numbers that play a key role here because the numbers of animals raised for food simply you know, is hundreds of times greater than the numbers of animals used in any other area of animal abuse that we might talk about. Um, consider, for example, the use of animals in research. Uh, when I wrote Animal Liberation, essentially I had two long chapters describing what we do to animals, one factory farm animals and the other animals in research. And certainly you can describe horrible things that are done to animals in research. I, I think actually it was easier to describe it when, in the 70s than it is today, but um, but there are still very bad things done to animals in the, in research. Um, but if you look at the numbers uh, and you ask, well, how many animals are used in research worldwide? We don't really know, but estimates might be uh, around 100 million a year. Maybe they're 200 million a year because 
a lot of animal research is going to China and we don't really know how much there is there. So, you know, I might say, wow, 200 million, that's a lot of animals being used in research and killed. But then you ask how many animals are raised for food each year and the World Health Organization gives you figures and th these figures are for vertebrate land-based animals. So no fish um, and only vertebrates. Uh, and that figure is 74 billion. So 740, well, if it's 100 million animals, 740 times as many animals. If it's 200 million, 370 uh, times. But, you know, it, it just dwarfs uh, that. And then if you consider other animals, I mean, a lot of people are concerned about the abuse of dogs and cats, and stray dogs and cats. Um, but really there you're talking about, uh, well, depending what, you know, what country you're in, but it's it's much smaller even than the number of animals used in research. It might be uh, in the United States. I think I saw figures there might be four million uh, stray dogs and cats or dogs and cats that end up in animal shelters. Um, so it's it's smaller still. And use of animals for fur, or other, you know, then you can talk about wildlife. Um, and some of the wildlife kills are quite large. In Australia, we kill several million kangaroos a year. Um, but we don't, in that case, we don't actually uh, make them suffer in the way we make factory farmed animals or even lab animals suffer. We, we do shoot them and they may not die instantly. And sometimes we shoot females who have joeys who are out of the patch and the joey hops off because they're, they're shot at night. The hop, joey hops off into the darkness um, and may starve to death. There certainly is suffering there. I don't want to minimize it. But um, again, in terms of numbers, it's much less than the farmed animals. So that's where I think we ought to focus. Um, now, I think your question also asked about uh, tactics and what we ought to do. That's really difficult to know. Um, and from time to time, uh, the animal movement gets, uh, or some elements of the animal movement get frustrated with a slow progress or lack of progress. Um, and they engage in more radical and even violent activity. Um, I've observed that happen over the over the decades, and I think it's always been a mistake. Um, I don't think it's achieved anything. I think it's significantly damaged the image of the animal movement, uh, and so I think that that's clearly not the right tactic. Um, it's possible that nonviolent civil disobedience could be justified um, in some circumstances, and I don't oppose that um, by people who are really committed to understanding theory of civil disobedience, understanding uh, how to train to be nonviolent, even when other people are violent or threaten violence towards you, um, who use the occasion of breaking the law to um, testify to the abuses that they're trying to stop and to demonstrate their conviction and sincerity. I think that that can be a useful tactic, but, um, but that's as far I would draw a line at that. I would not go beyond that in terms of more radical tactics. Sure. Um, and moving on from the topic of animal welfare for now, um, I'd like to ask our, our most upvoted question, which is how do you cope with the compassion fatigue slash emotional desensitisation when you're constantly researching and engaging with these heavy, heavy ethical issues? Okay. Well, firstly, I'm, I'm not doing this you know, all of my waking hours, although, you know, you... You might argue that I should, if I can, if I can make a positive difference, then um, that's a good thing to be doing. And you know, I, 
maybe better than what I'm doing as a recreation. So um, during this lockdown, we've been uh, my wife and I've been uh, going for walks, doing some uh, occasional more serious hikes, um, and that's always been one of our major forms of, of recreation. Um, now, should I not be doing that, but spend the time uh, researching more grim facts to bring to your attention? Um, well, I like to say, look, I don't know whether I could survive that. I might have just burned out if I had done that. And um, you know, I have actually seen people in the movement, particularly in the animal movement, um, who've come into organisations. It's not very recently, but for many years, I was president of Animal Liberation Victoria, and then I was also involved with uh, as I said, the Australian Federation of Animal Societies. I was chair of that. Um, so I've, I've seen several people come into the movement. Um, they've learnt about how animals are abused. They're horrified by it. They say, this has got to stop. And they work with tremendous dedication and commitment to stopping it. Um, and they do a lot of good work. But very often, not all of them, but very often, Two or three years later, they're out of the movement. They, they just can't take it anymore. Um, and they've got to do something completely different and go back to having a normal life. Um, and so I've been doing these things for uh, more than 50 years now. Um, and I'm still doing it. And I think that is partly because I don't do it full time. Um, I don't obsess with it. I, I am able to put it out of my mind and uh, go and do something that's just fun or enjoyable or spend time with family or friends. Uh, uh, and, and not all of my friends are either of, in the animal movement or uh, from effective altruists. Um, so we don't just talk about those things either. So I think you, you do need to have, try to have a, a reasonably normal life um, unless you're a very unusual type of person uh, who can actually do this all the time. Yeah, I think that's some great points you make there and um, burnout is obviously a, a huge issue I think as well when when you say like you know you still live a normal life and and all those sorts of things, it projects a, a far better image to um, the wider community and encourages more people to actually join the movement. Um, I'd now like to move on to the global poverty section of our discussion. I know that's a huge issue that you deal with. Um, our first question is how how do you justify bringing biological children into the world when there's the option to adopt children, foster children? Um, and second part to that, would it be unethical to raise a child knowing that money could be spent on preventing global poverty? Right. Um, okay, so there's a couple of questions there. Um, and in a way, the second part of that, would it be unethical to raise a child when you could spend the money on doing things for global poverty? Um, goes to the more fundamental issue of whether it's it's right to have children at all, whether you, they're your own biological children or whether you're adopting them. Um, so I can see the argument for saying, uh, no, you shouldn't do that. Um, there are better things you could be doing. Um, but I, you know, and I do have friends who don't have children, um, mature friends who pretty certainly not going to have children of their own now um, and who have used their time uh, very effectively and, and their resources as well sometimes. But um, I do worry about uh, the future if people who, who think ethically and are concerned about the world as a whole decide that they're not going to have children, either their own or adopted. Um, because I do think that parents... 
have an influence on their children. Um, and they may, you know, that it may be that their children inherit uh, genetic tendencies biologically, or it may be that they come from their upbringing. But I, but I think there's no doubt that um, you're more likely to be the kind of person who thinks about the world as a whole and thinks altruistically about others if you've come from a home where that's something that people do and think about and talk about. So if um, people with those altruistic ideas don't have children, uh, I worry about whether in future generations it'll be there'll be fewer altruists and, and that would undo some of the, the good that's been done. Um, that still leaves the question of, well, why not adopt children rather than have your own? Uh, I sort of have to admit that for my wife and I, we wanted to have children who would be our children biologically. That was important in various ways to continue the family line. Um, uh, and, you know, arguably in our case, that's because we, we, we both have uh, Holocaust backgrounds and uh, lost a lot of family members uh, to the Nazis. Um, and there was a sense of wanting to continue those that did survive, if you like, to continue those lines. Um, but I think even if it wasn't for that, um, I probably would have wanted to have uh, children who are my children. Uh, I don't know. I might have found it hard to have the same bond. And I know, you know parents who've adopted children say, no, that's not true. You know, it doesn't make any difference, Once, you, especially if you have them from when they're really small. Um, but I'm not, you know, so for me, this was something anyway that I, I really wanted to do. Um, was it something that I wanted to do, but that was a selfish thing to do, that was the wrong thing to do? Um, I'm just not sure. It's possible. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that I should be an example to others in this respect, um, but I'm just saying that I think there are arguments that go in different directions, and it's not, it's not clear-cut to me anyway uh, that it is the wrong thing to do. Sure. Um, and I know in, in one of your books you make the point that if we imagine a future where all effective altruists don't have children and, and everyone else has children, then there's going to be less effective altruists in the future and all the negative consequences of that. So I think we can all appreciate there's, it's a very tough question to, to answer. Um, on to our next question, localised giving. So, for example, giving to those within, within your own country. Um, it is considered to be less effective than giving to other causes overseas due to the scale and the nature of global poverty. Um, do you think, however, that there's something to be said to giving to those within your community um, in the way that it fosters community values? Uh, well, I mean, if nobody were giving within our own community, and when, when I say our own community, of course, I'm living in an affluent society and I'm assuming we're talking about uh, affluent societies that don't have yeah. um, people in extreme poverty by global standards. Um, uh, and there's a lot of community altruism and community service and community donation that goes on uh, here in Australia and in the United States where I also spend part of each year. Uh, so I don't think there's any danger that uh, it's going to cease. Um, and I don't think that it needs more strengthening than it has, or if it does, I think that's um, outweighed by the 
greater benefits and greater effectiveness of what we can do by giving to uh, countries where there is extreme poverty, um, uh, countries where there are a lot of people living on the equivalent of about $2 a day. Um, so uh, that's why I and other effective altruists do advocate uh, if you are in an affluent country, you should give to a country that is, uh, or, or to an organisation that is working in low-income countries with people in extreme poverty. Uh, and you know, the main reason for that is just that your your money goes so much further. Um, think about it. Think about the fact that there are over 700 million people living on uh, the purchasing power equivalent of, of $2 a day. Um, and think about how much difference you can make to somebody like that. You know, suppose that you know, $2 a day, $750 a year or something of that sort. Um, uh, so suppose that you could save up $750 and you could give it to a family. You've just doubled their income. There are now things that they can do that they could not possibly have thought of doing. They uh, Quite simple things like replacing a leaky thatched roof with a corrugated iron roof that will actually keep them dry, keep themselves dry, keep their food supplies dry when it rains uh, and won't need replacing every year. So in the long run, it's cheaper than a thatched roof, but they could never afford to save up that amount of money previously. Now they can. So you can make a big life-changing difference to people with $750 if you donate to people in extreme poverty. And that example that I just gave, you can do that by giving to GiveWell, which, sorry, to give directly, which is an organisation that actually does cash transfers to people in extreme poverty in low-income countries. Um, uh, now, imagine that you take $750 that you've saved up and you give it to somebody who's you know, relatively poor within Australia, um, poor compared to most people in Australia. Um, that's not going to be a life-changing difference, or at least it's, it's very hard to think of circumstances in which it would be a life-changing difference, because they're already entitled to social security payments and uh, other assistance, which adds up to much more than that. Um, and so instead of doubling their annual income, you're giving them an additional, um, you know, maybe an additional month's income, uh, quite possibly less than that. Uh, and um, that's not going to make that kind of difference. So, so that's why I, I do think that that outweighs the benefits of fostering uh, a closer community here. Sure. Um, I think that's an excellent answer. On to a more personal question that people would like to hear from you. Um, how have you personally cut back on your unnecessary spending and was that transition initially quite difficult? Uh well, you know, when my wife and I started doing this back in the 1970s, we uh, started giving 10% of our income to, um, uh, at that stage, we were living in Oxford and we gave it to Oxfam because they had their headquarters there and we went and talked to them. They seemed a good organisation and I still think they are a good organisation uh, and we still give to them, but we don't uh, only give to them as we did then. Um, and that 10%, you know, we, we didn't have a lot. I was, um, I was a I was a graduate student on a scholarship, a pretty modest scholarship, and um, my wife was a high school teacher, so she was earning more than I was, but um, we didn't have a lot. Uh, did it force us to cut back? Not a great deal, I suppose. We, um, 
we were still up. Um, we did still possible. Um, and then we've gradually increased the proportion that we're giving as we have um, as we've become more affluent and uh, uh, had more to spare. So we're we're now giving a lot more than ten percent. Um, and I, I think you know I could say compared to some of our friends, we're living relatively more modestly. You know, we haven't done uh, lavish renovations of our home. Um, we uh, you know, we drive a 15-year-old Prius. Um, uh, we haven't upgraded to a Mercedes or anything like that. But and uh, we get a lot more satisfaction and joy out of knowing that we're able to support uh, good organisations doing great work. So um, I wouldn't regard it as a sacrifice. I would regard it as um, uh, uh, actually as having you know, benefited, being better for ourselves. Um, and you know now you might say, well, you know, okay, so I should be giving a lot more than that. I should uh, should be living more simply. And again, you know, this is a bit like my answer to the question about having children. Um, I'm not going to say that it wouldn't. I wouldn't be a better person if I had. I claim to be a saint. I don't claim to be giving every dollar that I should be giving. Um, but on the other hand, I know that I'm giving uh, a lot more than is typical in this community, unfortunately, and uh, I'm contributing, therefore, to raising the standard, and um, so I don't feel too bad about the standard of living that I still spend money on. Yeah, and I think that's some great points that you make about... Uh, I think, um, are we getting internet problems? You're... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah, but I, I got a little notice saying my connection is becoming unstable or something like yeah, that. Yeah, okay. You froze if, for a moment. I'll, I'll, we'll investigate that. Um, hopefully your internet picks up. Um, yeah, I can see that your bandwidth's a little bit low. Um, with, with that answer you just gave, I think that's a great point about how it doesn't have a detrimental impact on our own lives and you don't need to... Um, to be an effective altruist, you don't need to give every single dollar you, you have because um, you drive yourself crazy if, if you do. On to our next question. Um, one interesting criticism of EA's approach to dealing with extreme poverty is um, a, lot of the, a lot of the EA movement focuses on very specific, tangible interventions whose impact can be easily measured, um, for example, malaria, deworming, direct cash transfers. Um, these interventions are also led by non-profits that largely operate outside of the state. Um, does this hinder the long-term development capacity of, of states in developing countries? And how can the EA movement better support institutional change slash improvement in the long run? Yeah, it's certainly a, a big and difficult problem, um, and it's really hard to know how best to support institutional change and how we ought to evaluate that and compare it with some of the things that I just talked about. So, giving grant a corrugated iron roof or start a little business or something like that, um, those may be very good things for specific families but they don't produce institutional change. Um, but 
then the question is, well, what does produce institutional change? What has been successful in producing institutional change? And we don't have a lot of models of that. Uh, some organisations, Oxfam is one of them, uh, does support civil society initiatives in, in impoverished countries where there is a flourishing civil society. Uh, so one of the examples I talk about in my book, The Life You Can Save, is uh, uh, the fact that Oxfam supported uh, organisations in Ghana uh, when Ghana discovered uh, oil and gas offshore. Um, the organisations wanted to make sure that some of the revenue from the oil and gas went to some of the poorest people in the country, um, not just to the elite. And because Ghana is uh, a democracy um, and, and it has a flourishing civil society sector and they're free to express their um, that succeeded in, in getting uh, legislation passed that a proportion of the money had to go to small uh, smallholder farmers. Uh, so, you know, you can do that and you can strengthen those institutions, but, but suppose that you have um, a different government, suppose you're in Zimbabwe or Equatorial Guinea or somewhere like that where the governments are essentially you know, corrupt and uh, enriching themselves. Uh, Angola would be another case, country with a lot of oil wealth, but uh, a very rich elite and a lot of very poor people. How can we really change that? Um, I don't know that anybody has a good answer to that. Um, and if they did, then I have no doubt that effective altruists would hurry to support it. Um, but the reason... are not supporting those initiatives is we don't have the sort of record we don't use. Uh, so you know I, I welcome research and scholarship into this uh, that will try to produce answers but at the moment um, I don't know that we really have good answers. Yeah sure and a related question to that um, a common criticism of charity money as you advocate it is that it's just a band-aid to to larger issues um do you think this is this is true and is that a reason to not be donating to these organizations uh well uh, i'd answer you know maybe yes it is a band-aid and no that's not a reason for not donating to them right so people who think that the fact that it's a band-aid is a reason for not donating you know put your hands up if you've never used a band-aid um band-aids are very useful things um, you know, if, if, if something is, is bleeding, you, you don't have a way of stopping the bleeding internally. You know, maybe there's something you could do, but you, we don't. So you stick on the Band-Aid, eventually it gets better. Um, and it, so it's the same comparison, really. Uh, you know, yes, helping people in extreme poverty to get some basic health care, to um, start small businesses, to uh, replace their thatched roofs, to educate their children, um, those things, in some sense, may be band-aids, but um, if we don't have ways of really getting at the root causes of uh, extreme poverty, then the band-aid is doing nothing, and it does help concrete people to have better lives, and, and that's a good thing in itself. Now, let me, this in a way goes back to the previous question. Let me just talk about some other things that we might try to do. Um, so people might say, well, the real root cause of extreme poverty is the global economic order, and that's what we need to change. But, you know, 
what is the global economic order? What do we want to replace it with? You know, a lot of people say, well, it's capitalism. So, okay, so what are, what are the successful alternatives to capitalism that we know work better? It's, there's no answer to that question. We don't have a large-scale alternative that's worked better. We've tried various forms of socialism. Um, basically, they haven't survived or they've survived only with repression of opposition. Um, and it would be very hard to say, here's a model that has actually worked better. Um, uh, so, you know, what else? Some people might say, well, it's, it's the unfair trading system. It's the agricultural subsidies that reduce the prices of agricultural products on the global markets. And so... Growers in low-income countries can't get a fair price. And all of that is true. They do depress agricultural prices. They do make it harder for uh, small farmers in developing countries to get good prices for their products when they particularly when they export um, uh, and it would be good to do something about that now in Australia we're actually not um, uh, an agricultural subsidy giving country because we have a big agricultural sex sector and we're actually trying to get other countries to stop subsidizing agriculture generally um, but you know if you're living in the United States if you're living in the European Union You might want to be politically active to stop those subsidies, um, but so far it's been very difficult to get those subsidies stopped. They, they, for political reasons, they keep getting renewed. So again, uh, even when we can identify one of the factors contributing to global poverty, uh, actually changing it is much more difficult than you might think. No, awesome. you're muted again. Some great points there. Thank you, Professor. Um, on to another topic which is quite um, relevant for a lot of young people. Intergenerational justice is a significant concern in climate change. Is the suffering of a person equal today equal to the suffering of a person tomorrow or, or in the future? Um, and if so, shouldn't all our money be donated towards tackling climate change? Um, and if it's not, then how should future suffering be discounted ethically? Uh, fine. Um, so I don't think future suffering should be discounted. I don't think it can be discounted ethically if what we're talking about is discounting it simply because it's future. Um, I know some economists do that. I think that that's a mistake. I don't think they're justified in discounting future suffering or future well-being simply because it's future. They, um, because we may be unsure as to what will benefit people in future. We don't know, uh, you know, what what is going to work. So this is one of the issues with something that effective altruists talk about. Um, they talk about the need to uh, do research to make sure that when we achieve artificial us Now, I agree that it's very important that it not do that, but I'm less sure that we now know much that will actually reduce the prospects of that happening, because at least some of the computer people that I talk to say um, that's uh, still, you know, maybe 
50 years ahead. And if it is 50 years ahead, then we're going to make so much more progress in terms of understanding how to bring about artificial general intelligence that I'm doubtful that there's much that we're doing today that we to reducing that risk. So uh, that's one reason why we might put less of our resources into the long-term future than uh, into the present. But uh, but those are the, you know, it's, it's basically uncertainty that is the only reason, I think. And of course, well, I guess the fact that we can invest money now and get a, a return on it, um, uh, uh, a positive rate, of it, that's a reason for value. Um, a dollar now more than a dollar in the future. But um, I don't, but I think that um, in itself, the future is just as, uh, matters just as much as the present and as the distant future matters just as much as the near future. Sure. And on that topic of a dollar now versus a dollar in the future, um, what, what would you say to people who are tossing up whether to donate their money to, to highly effective organisations now versus investing that money um, in the stock market and um, seeing that, that capital grow and then investing that, planning on investing that money later? Sorry, donating that money later. I, th I think the, you know, whether... whether um, whether it's it's justifiable to invest your money now and use it later uh, depends a lot on your investing skills. You know, if if uh, Warren Buffett had asked me that after he made his first million um, and I had said, no, give away your million, um, I, that would have been the wrong advice to give to Warren Buffett because he, he did reinvest that million and then he reinvested the next 100 million and so on. Um, and he's now ended up, donating, I think, close to $30 billion to effective charities, and he's planning to donate uh, significantly more still. So if you're as good at investing as Warren Buffett has been over his lifetime, um, yeah, by all means, <laughs> keep investing. Good luck to you. Um, but, you know, if you're just the average guy, um, I don't know that you're going to get a better rate of return than the rate of return that uh, people in poverty get on money spent on them now. You know, I already mentioned... Uh, give Directly's program that gives cash grants to people. Um, and as I said, some of them replace their thatched roof with an iron roof. Now, that actually has, as I said, a rate of return because instead of spending, you know, whatever it is, let's say instead of spending $20 a year uh, on an uh, on new thatch uh, each year for 10 years, which comes to $200, they spend $150 on an iron roof, which lasts for 20 years. Um, so... Uh, can you beat that rate of return? Um, or maybe they're going to start a small business which will have a much greater rate of return. Um, I don't know that you can. And, you know, well, we've all seen what the stock market has done in the last month or two, right? If you, somebody said no, you know, if they said in January, I'm going to invest my money so that I'll have a much greater amount of money um, uh, in six months' time, well, um, at the moment, they're probably underwater with that investment. Um, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Maybe they'll get up again, but it's difficult to predict. Yeah, great points you make about the different skills um, an investor might have. I know I certainly don't have the anywhere near the investing skills of someone like Warren Buffett. Um, I wanted to ask a question related to poverty in the global south, so not just very low-income countries but middle-income countries. 
really highly regarded EA organisations tend to focus on the absolute poorest countries. Um, but what advice do you have for people living in the global south but not necessarily in those countries? How best could we help them? Uh, so I think in, I mean, there are a number of countries that have both a lot of people in extreme poverty and uh, a lot of people with significant wealth. Uh, India is, a, is an example. Um, and uh, obviously what, what should happen in India is something like what is happening with the effective altruism movement on a global scale. That is, there should be organizations in India that assess which are the most effective ways of helping the hundreds of millions of people still in, in, in poverty in India uh, and then uh, encourage the uh, wealthy uh, upper class, upper middle class to donate and support those organizations so that um, they can do that within their own country. Uh, and, you know, I think that's that's something that should happen. And actually the life you can save is is trying to work with partners in India to get something like that going in India. So uh, for many countries that are more middle-income countries rather than uh, low-income countries or countries that have uh, great wealth as well as great poverty, I think that's really what should be happening. Um, in other cases, uh, I think it's probably more expertise and advice um, that uh, we can give that will benefit people in, in uh, middle-income countries to um, uh, to move forward and to actually join the more affluent countries. And, and we've, we've seen that happen, fortunately, in a number of uh, places, particularly in East and Southeast Asia. Um, so uh, I think we are making good progress with that. And it's rather the poorest countries that uh, seem to be the remaining problem that is not progressing in the right direction quite as well. Sure. And if we move on to um, the effective altruism topic specifically, um, say someone practised effective altruism by donating 10% of their salary, um, how much more good could they do by joining the movement and trying to do good publicly and collaboratively? Oh, I do think it is important to be uh, public about your giving and to try to join the movement and be part of it. Um, this is a point that I've made over the years that, uh, you know, a lot of people have this kind of ethos that they don't want to talk about their giving, that this is boastful in some way, they're bragging. Um, well, obviously, there are ways to talk about your giving that, that are um, bragging and are not likely to make you friends or influence people. But um, at the same time, if you don't talk about it with anyone ever, you're not setting an example for others. And uh, there's lots of social science research that shows that one of the big influences on getting people to give is that they see others are giving. None of us want to feel, well, why am I the only one who's giving? You know, why is nobody else helping? Um, that sort of makes you feel resentful about others um, and is more inclined to make you stop giving to overcome that resentfulness. Um, but if you know that other people are giving, if they talk about it, and if the movement of effective altruism uh, becomes more prominent. And, you know, fortunately it has become more prominent. It's got a lot of media attention, but if that even continues to increase, then more people join in. Uh, and I think that's a, a been a big factor in the success of the effective altruism movement, that it, it has 
been public, it's been online, everybody can find it. There have been newspaper articles about uh, people in the movement uh, who are giving significant amounts and other people have followed that. Um, uh, it, it happens all the time. So many people uh, learn about effective altruism and they learn about which charities are really effective through others talking to them about what they're doing. So, um, so do talk about it. I think that's really important. And uh, in terms of supporting the movement, um, I think that helps too. Uh, for example, I ask people to, to go to The Life You Can Save, the organization I founded, and to look at the recommended charities there. And if they do decide to donate to one of the recommended charities they've seen on, on the website, to do it through the website, because then The Life You Can Save gets a record of people having gone to their website and donated to those organizations. That means that we can then say, look, for every dollar that we spent, and it does spend cost you know, it's a few dollars to run a website, to have a, some staff people looking at which of the organizations to recommend, um, that does take some money. But, but the life you can save can say, for every dollar we spent, this is the actual figure for 2019, $13 went from through our website and through other sources that we can track to our work to um, effective organizations. So we can approach the, some donors who are willing to give at this sort of meta level, not directly giving, but are willing to give something to the life you can save as an organization. And they can be confident that that way they'll actually be sending more dollars um, through to these organizations. So it's important to have support for the movement um, because the movement does have to run organizations even you know cheaply as possible the executive director of the life you can save takes no salary at all he's um, effectively donating his time and he also even donates cash so I, I tell him he's on negative salary he has to pay for the privilege of being executive director <laughs> he doesn't really have to pay of course but he chooses to pay to donate so um, so you know we it's a very lean organization that we're running but you do need an organization and not everybody is fortunate enough to be in Charlie's position, the executive director. There are other people who don't have resources to fall back on and uh, need to get some pay. So uh, it's important to support the movement as well. Yeah, great, great points you make, especially about telling people about your giving because I know personally that when you, you see lots of other people giving and you hear about it, it becomes far more normal and easier um, to do it and, and you feel a lot better about it. I wanted to ask a, a quick follow-up question about effective altruism. Um, in, in what areas do you think the EA community needs to most improve? Uh, well, um, I think communicating with people is something that the EA movement can improve on. Um, it's something that uh, we've tried to focus on in uh, at The Life You Can Save and, and communicating uh, through mass media to as wide an audience as possible. Um, some of the EA movement has a bit of a, a nerdy image that these are people who crunch numbers and do lots of studies to see, you know, which organization is giving you the best value. Uh, and um, it doesn't therefore have as wide an appeal as I would like. Uh, and to some extent, you know, it's understandable that the effective altruism movement tends to target people who have money because they can give more money and I'll, you know, because of the um, the startups that have made lots of money and the younger people who've become very wealthy at a relatively young age, um, some of them have given lots of money. So 
that kind of also increases this image that that the movement is something for uh, nerdy people who can make millions from startups. Uh, but in fact, you know, there, there's a lot more money out there that is still not being effectively given. And if we can reach that wider audience and get the idea of getting value for your money in the charitable sector, um, just in, you know, the way these people are always concerned about value for their money when they go to the supermarket or when they buy a new phone or laptop. So why aren't they concerned about getting value for money with their charitable donations? If we could get that money given more effectively, we would do a lot more good than we are. And that's somewhat something I think the uh, effective altruism movement needs to raise its game to, to reach uh, that larger giving sector. Sure. And I think one of the best examples which which you um, raise in your book would be the, the guide dogs example in terms of if that sort of money was used um, more effectively. Now, on to a slightly different topic. Um, there are many sources of pleasure in our world from consumer goods to art to music, family, love, um, cultivating a, a virtuous character etc and although many of these are hard to to quantify um which do you think are the most reliable sources for and best sources for leading a happy life well um there are there are a lot of of different sources but i think we are getting some knowledge about what are the things that are important for happiness uh and one of them is definitely uh close personal relationships uh it seems, you know, it's obvious in a way when you look at us, but humans are a social species. Um, uh, we are not, you know, given to isolation. Um, we're more like chimpanzees and bonobos than we're like orangutans who tend to be somewhat more solitary. Um, uh, so we need to have close personal relationships. And I think if you want to have a good life, and uh, uh, then, then that's part of it. But the other thing that's particularly relevant to what we've been talking about is that uh, we're also beings who want to have uh, some sense of uh, fulfillment in our life um, and that search for meaning in our life. Um, I think the search for meaning in our life is perhaps uh, a major factor in the uh, persistence of, of religious beliefs that seem to me to be uh, not inherently plausible, but that people support because it is a way of finding often both meaning and community in their lives. But, um, you know, People may disagree with that, and there are plenty of religious people who are effective altruists, and um, I, I can respect that. But uh, you know, the idea of getting uh, having a sense of purpose and thinking um, I'm doing something that is worthwhile, that is good in itself, uh, is important to to happiness, and uh, that's one of the things, ways in which uh, the effective altruism movement produces a harmony between having uh, a happy and rewarding life yourself and doing good for the world. Because if you're part of the effective altruism movement, if making the world a better place is, is one of your goals, that's a way to find meaning and fulfillment. And uh, so as well as doing good for everyone else, you're likely to be doing good for yourself. And again, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, studies in uh, psychology that uh, support this view that people who are more generous tend to be happier with their lives. People who um, go out and, and give uh, have a better time than people who are 
only thinking of their self-interest in this much more narrower sense of uh, accumulating more material goods and um, and being richer than others. And uh, that may bring some satisfaction in the short run, but it seems not to be a lasting satisfaction. You know, if we spend more money on ourselves and get more consumer goodies, we feel a buzz for a while, but we adapt to it. Um, whereas this sense of living a purposeful and fulfilling life is something that persists with us and, and has even been shown to contribute to, to uh, better health as well. And, Professor, on those trade-offs between those different things, um, how, how do you trade off something like the pleasure you get from music with the suffering of extreme poverty? And if the suffering of extreme poverty always outweighs the pleasure of music, does it mean it's morally wrong when we give our money to creating art or to music? Well, I think generally speaking, um, yes, the suffering of extreme poverty does outweigh the pleasures that you get from uh, something like music or the arts. Um, and you know, that's because I think the extent of really serious suffering um, is is greater. If you like, the, the range of suffering is greater than the range of happiness and pleasure. Uh, you know, many people might think of it as if, there's, there's a neutral state. Let's say there's a neutral state in which I say, you know, well, I'm neither happy nor suffering at the moment. Um, and, you know, so in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's a neutral state. And then you might say, and you can be very happy, that's plus 100, and you can be very miserable, that's minus 100. But I think that's wrong. I think that's a mistake. I don't think the gap between neutral and the happiest possible experiences is the same as the gap between neutral and the worst possible experiences, the greatest suffering, the greatest pain or misery. Um, and sometimes I ask people in a meeting, say, you know, suppose that uh, there was some magician around who could give you an hour of the greatest pleasure that you've ever experienced, but you would also have to have the price of this is an hour of the greatest pain and suffering you've ever experienced. How many of you would take that deal? And it's always a, a minority, sometimes quite a small minority that would. It's, not, it's usually not nobody, but, um, but most people, when they think about that, reflect on it, realise that they would not accept an hour of the worst suffering in, turn, in exchange for an hour of the greatest pleasure. So uh, that's, that's why I say that I think that the suffering uh, of extreme poverty and other forms of, of suffering uh, are worse, you know, are further from neutral than... Than, than happiness. Um, and that does make it difficult uh, to support um, arts and music and, and other activities. Um, of course, they needn't cost significant amounts of money. I mean, what I, I object, for example, to museums spending tens of millions of dollars on new paintings, um, which I don't think, you know, I, I, I think they could do much better things with their money. No, you know, okay, they're museums, they're endowed, they're, they, they can't actually just give the money to people in poor countries but but i would not give to a museum for that reason i would think um they're not going to get as much value out of uh buying a new painting as uh one of the effective charities working for people in extreme poverty is going to get um but uh, that's not to say that people shouldn't uh get involved in the arts shouldn't get in be creative shouldn't create their own music or listen to music with friends so, you know it, it doesn't have to cost you anything um and 
you know, I accept just as I said, it's a fact that we're social beings. It's a fact that we're beings who have creative and artistic desires and humans always produce art or have produced art in the cave paintings um, and they produced art in the concentration camps. So uh, it is important, but it's the, it's a sort of big money art essentially. And for that, you know, the, that, that's really what I object to, what I don't think is a good use of, of funds. Sure. Um, now we've got a couple of questions um, left. Hopefully these will be a little bit lighter. For you personally, Professor, what do you read to challenge your current beliefs? Uh, I get a lot of emails that challenge my current beliefs, <laughs> I have to say. Um, some of those are from colleagues sending me uh, philosophy articles that they've written or sending me links to to articles that they've written. Some of them are from members of the general public um, who challenge my beliefs in in one way or another. Um, so I'm not I'm not short of challenges to my beliefs. Um, but uh, you know, yes, I will read books that um, people uh, you know recommend or that I learn about that are specific challenges um, to things that I need. So, for example, in writing uh, the life you can save. Uh, uh, ten, right, the first edition 10 years ago, I read Bill Easterly's book, uh, The White Man's Burden, which uh, is a challenge to uh, aid and uh, argues that aid is not, uh, is not good in overall things considered. I also read a book by my Princeton colleague, Angus Deaton, called The Great Escape, which has a chapter on that, and we had a seminar discussing aid. So I've you know, certainly reread plenty of challenges about that. Um, on the animals issue, I can't say I've read a lot that's challenged my views, but this, the, the question that was right, that you raised or that one of the questions raised about um, how do we know when an animal's life is positive or not, certainly that's something that I've read things about. Um, and I've read philosophical uh, articles and books challenging the ethics of my views on that issue as well. Though I have to say that I haven't come across any that I thought really challenged the fundamentals of the view that we should give equal consideration to the similar interests of animals. And our very last question for you, um, have you watched the TV show The Good Place? And given your career, what do you think is the best way of getting um, more ordinary people involved in thinking about these philosophical um, issues? Okay, well, um, Yes, I have watched uh, some episodes of The Good Place. I wouldn't say that I've watched it regularly, um, but uh, somebody did bring it to my attention. Uh, they, what they mentioned, in fact, was that uh, some of my work gets mentioned in The Good Place, um, and that was nice. And uh, then when we were producing this uh, updated edition, the 10th anniversary edition of The Life You Can Say, which came out uh, in December, um, we... Uh, produced an audio book and uh, we wanted to have well-known people read chapters of it. So some of them were people that I'd got to know over the years in one way or another. So Paul Simon, the singer-songwriter, uh, reads a chapter and that's great that he's done that. He's one of my favourite uh, singer-songwriters. Um, but we also uh, contacted The Good Place because we knew that they uh, were aware of my work. Uh, and uh, we actually... Um, got Kristen Bell, um, is on The Good Place, the actress, to read a chapter. But also we got in touch with Mike Schuer, who's the writer and producer, the creator of The Good Place. And uh, he not only 
uh, offered to read for it, but he also wrote a uh, forward to it. So there's a short forward by Mike Sure, and I've been in touch with him um, as a result of that. Uh, and in fact, uh, again, this is something that was thwarted by the coronavirus. Um, we had arranged for him to come to Princeton to speak to students at Princeton about uh, ethics in the media. And basically the kind of question that you just asked about how can we use the media to get ethical ideas across. Uh, and were it not for the coronavirus, uh, he would be uh, been doing that at Princeton and I would have been there to uh, spend time with him. We'll try and reschedule that when all of this is over and I hope I do get to, to meet him in person. But um, certainly I think, you know, programs like that can be a good way of spreading ideas, getting people to think about ethics. Um, trying to write in a style that is accessible is something that I've always valued throughout my career. Uh, and. So I do write for newspapers, op-eds, in fact, uh, on, on Monday, so tomorrow, except tomorrow in the United States, the Washington Post is publishing an op-ed that I co-authored about um, ethics and re of research in the case of the coronavirus. Um, and uh, I also did something on the other question you asked about the lockdown and when should the lockdown end. So I think it's important for philosophers to contribute to uh, popular media. Of course, you can never get all of the nuances and the full ramifications into a newspaper op-ed in the way you would get into a uh, 8,000 word academic journal article, but um, you get a lot more readers, I have to say, and, and that's important too. Excellent. Well, that brings our Q&A session to a close. Um, Professor Singer, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. Um, I'd like to reiterate some of the incredible work Pe Professor Singer ha has recently done. Um, one of his books, which he's spoken about, The Life You Can Save, um, has had its 10th anniversary released and is available for free as an audio book as well as 99 cents on Amazon um, for your Kindle. I implore everyone viewing this to read the book um, or even if you read the first first five pages you won't regret it and it will really put some things in perspective for you now it might it might feel like after hearing all this theoretical um, and at the end of the day quite demanding philosophy that we might not know what to do what what is actually an achievable way that you and me can utilize these principles in order to do some good Fortunately, there are organisations that exist to help you figure out the best ways you can do good, as well as spread these ideas to others. Um, meta charities such as Give Well, The Life You Could Save, Can Save.org, and Giving What We Can have created lists of recommended charities which do incredibly effective work. Um, in terms of advocacy, at Melbourne University, there is an effective altruism club as well as a One for the World club. Um, and we would absolutely love to have, have you guys involved in these. It's an awesome community to be involved in and it helps you um, keep motivated and stay on the ethical pathway as well as meet like-minded people. There'll be links to both those organisations in the chat. Um, Effective Altruism Uni Melb is more a community for people, like-minded people to discuss ideas, um, whereas One for the World uses a more um, practical, immediate sort of approach in trying to get members to pledge 
1% of their postgraduate income to fighting global poverty. Currently, we are also running a variety of events online um, for, for everyone to stay in touch and keep each other motivated. Next week, we'll be running a Zoom call to discuss the event tonight, um, the details of which you'll receive via email. I'd like to give a shout out as well to the Vegan Club and One for the World ANU, um, both of which helped sponsor today's event. So thank you very much to both these clubs. One for the World ANU are Australia's second and, and newest One for the World club, um, and they're doing great things. If you're interested in helping start up another One for the World organisation um, or, or chapter, then please get in contact with, with us. Finally, I'd like to thank our viewers who've already started doing good. We've received $430 currently in donations from you all through Eventbrite and our committee will be um, covering the process fee by donating their own money towards GiveWell recommended charities. I hope that you all had an awesome night. Thank you very much for taking the time to um, view this and I'd like to again thank Professor Singer for speaking to us. Thanks for coming everyone and hope you have a nice week. Thanks Nathan and thanks everybody involved in organising this.